Uh, If you would open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, we will be in verse 51, Luke chapter 9. When you find that uh, place in Luke's gospel, I want to invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he sent his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So we have uh, turned a corner at this point in the Gospel of Luke. And you might have noticed the language uh, there in verse 51 that cues us into that reality. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, uh, that language then essentially is a a turning point or a pivot in the whole uh, gospel according to Luke. Now, if you are considering, let's say, the big major divisions that are present in Luke's gospel, uh, each major division has a major theme or a major goal that it has in mind. And the the text we just entered, uh, it turns the corner and it aims essentially from here until his death on the cross. This is the uh, second or the third uh, major section in Luke's gospel. And it turns and it aims us from who he is and his identity towards his mission and what he will accomplish. Now, uh, it might be easy for us to, let's say, lose sight of that, especially with uh, how long we've been in Luke's gospel or um, how long we've been even in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel with how many uh, different stories and intricacies there are. Um, So my intent a little bit uh, in our time together tonight is to uh, piece together a little bit of where we've been coming from. uh, that, That informs where we're going, and that informs how this text essentially launches us into that next direction. So uh, the main theme or the main idea I want you to fix in your mind tonight is the determination of Jesus, the determination of Jesus. And we notice that language right off the bat in verse 51 when it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, you might have a translation in front of you that says he resolved or he set his face resolutely or he fixed in his mind to go to Jerusalem. All of those are trying to draw uh, on the language of what's being communicated in, in the original text, which is that he, he firmly resolved in his mind, about as firmly as you can say it in Greek, he, he put it that firmly in his mind to go towards Jerusalem. This was his determined, resolved, intentional goal for the rest of his time on earth. Now, that language is language that Luke is doing uh, two things with. One, he's, he's drawing back uh, to early in his gospel where he's, he's told us about who Jesus is, what he's like, his mission on earth. He's kind of departed from that for the last couple of chapters to argue that Jesus' identity really is the Messiah, the Christ. And now he's, he's going to turn again and he's going to say, okay, now that we've established the identity as the Christ and who he is, now we're going to go back to his mission and we're going to say, how does he accomplish that and what is the goal of this mission? 
So I just want to, let's say, draw your mind to a couple of those places where he's, he's turning in that phrase. Uh, and you don't necessarily need to turn there, although you can if, it might, if it's helpful for you. Uh, remember in the early parts of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, set forth Luke's uh, account of the birth narrative of Jesus. And that starts with uh, him announcing first the birth of Zechariah, who will be the messenger who goes before the face of the Lord, who runs in front of him. Uh, and then he introduces us to Jesus himself, uh, whose, whose birth is prophesied, and he will be the one who will save their people from their sins. Uh, and then we have a couple of songs, or, uh, both by Elizabeth, and then Zechariah, and Mary, uh, and even the angels sing, and all of them are singing regarding the deliverance of the Lord. And then you have Simeon and Anna, the prophet and prophetess, who uh, preach or proclaim or ruminate over the glory of God's salvation, all around this child, Jesus, who is to be born. Um, and then Luke chapter 3 kind of concludes with uh, both uh, Jesus' baptism, and then that list of genealogies, all which kind of conclude two things. One, the baptism tells us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The Lord indeed has anointed him, right? That's the thing he's going to tell us in chapter 4. But the baptism tells us that that happened. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you have the genealogy, which fixes that Jesus is not just some random person trying to fulfill the shoes of the Messiah, but rather he's the one who is in the lineage of David, and that is what the genealogy serves. So the first, let's say, three chapters of Luke's gospel is arguing for the ultimate purpose and character of Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 3, and then you pivot to chapter 4, and you, it introduces you to, let's say, the first, or I should say the second piece of that equation, which is his identity, who he is. Is he really the royal Christ? And if so, how do we know? So first he goes up against Satan. He faces the temptations, Luke chapter 4. And then he goes and preaches uh, in, a, in a synagogue. He preaches from the prophecy of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. And he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Then he uh, faces, let's say, rejection from the people, the rejection from the Jewish leaders. And then he goes, uh, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 7, he begins to teach uh, about who he is by doing miracles, preaching of the gospel, all of these things he's doing to solidify his identity. And then chapter 9 opens up with him uh, now passing that authority on to his disciples. They are going to go on mission as well and preach about his identity. And we saw then that series of questions about who Jesus is, what he's like, how does he fulfill these shoes. Um, and in these last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, how Jesus', Jesus identity is ultimately confirmed by the, the transfiguration, the confession of Peter, the declaration from the voice on the mountain. All of these serve to bolster that initial claim in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, that his identity is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the Christ. And that has all happened. And during the latter half of that time in Luke's gospel, Luke has both been telling us how he's fulfilling the shoes of the Christ and correctly instructing his disciples about what the Christ really is like. Because remember, they have a distortion. They think the Christ is a earthly king who comes for a earthly dominion, and that's his primary focus. And Jesus needs to alter their perception of that. Now, that's not something that is new here in this text. Uh, that's actually something we've seen uh, a couple of places in chapter 9. You'll remember in chapter 9, verse 22, uh, where he, he says to them that it is necessary that the Son of Man must face, uh, must face many sufferings, and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must die, and on the third day he will be resurrected. So this is a necessary component of the mission of the Messiah on earth. Well, he doesn't stop there. He has to repeat himself again in uh, verse uh, 31 of Luke chapter 9, where he's discussing with Elijah and Moses, 
And what are they talking about? They're talking about the Exodus, his, his ascension, his both death, burial, and resurrection. And then he doesn't just stop there, but remember in verse 44, which we covered uh, a few weeks ago, he says that uh, it, is, it is necessary that he must be betrayed and given over into the hands of men. All these things are Jesus's slight corrections of the disciples' misunderstanding of who he is. The general thrust, the general through line is in all of the glory, don't miss the mission because the mission is integral to the purpose on earth. He, he can't have a nation to rule if there's no one in that nation. So how does he get a nation to rule? Well, he's got to redeem for himself a people and a nation to rule. This is something the Jews misunderstand. They think by being Jewish, they will be part of the nation that the Messiah will come to rule. And that's something that John the Baptist has to say. Don't say to yourself, we are children of Abraham. God can take from these rocks and make for themselves children of Abraham. Repent and flee from the wrath that is to come. This is the message of John the Baptist. This is the message of Jesus. This is what puts him in much conflict with the Pharisees. But his disciples don't quite understand this either. They, they have a lot of their cultural background context that's informing who they see him as. And so they have a really hard time with this. But Luke is, remember, he's writing from a vantage point where he's already seen all these things happen. Right Early in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, he says, I'm writing about the things which have been fulfilled about this Jesus of Nazareth, that you may be certain of the things which you have seen or which you have heard. He's talking to Theophilus. So Luke's writing from a vantage point after the death, after the resurrection, after Jesus has taught, after Jesus has sent Paul to teach, after Luke's been discipled by Paul. So Luke's piecing these things together for us in a really helpful way. He's not in the midst of confusion, but he's exploring the disciples' confusion with us in a constructive way. And so when uh, the disciples, let's say, at the height of their misunderstanding, right, last week we see them bickering amongst themselves about what the kingdom is to be like, who is to be the greatest in this kingdom. Right? You think about an earthly kingdom, you'll have a right-hand man and then other people, and they're thinking this is what the kingdom is like. So they're debating among themselves, who is the greatest, who will have relative authority. Jesus says, my kingdom's not like that. And then they talk about the other person who they forbid from casting out demons, and Jesus essentially corrects them and says, don't, don't go against someone who's against you or who's not against you because uh, my kingdom is actually big enough for them as well. They don't need to necessarily be in your camp exactly for them to be part of my kingdom. As long as they're in my name preaching my gospel, that's what matters. So his kingdom's both inclusive, expansive, uh, and it's not segmented in hierarchy. And then uh, he's going to now turn, and Luke's now turning, and he's going to begin to explore how does the nature of the kingdom not being an earthly kingdom, how does that unfold in more definition, right? Let's say right now we have maybe a two-dimensional drawing, a vague understanding of it. He's going to, for the rest of Luke's gospel, basically until chapter 19, flush out through parables and teachings and, and all kinds of encounters with Jesus about what is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. This is where most of the famous parables in Luke's gospel come from, about how he, he really comes to redeem the poor, and that's where you might think about the prodigal son. These parables exist in that chunk, of the Gospel of Luke. But all of those are underscored, the flushing out of what the kingdom is like, they're underscored by the mission of Jesus in this kingdom. And the mission is attached to what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, that's what the text is telling us tonight. When the days drew near, when the days were being fulfilled, or when the things are coming to completion for him to be taken up, uh, the word there is for him to ascend for him to write Exodus, for him to do those things. When the days draw near for him to be taken up, he fixes in his mind or he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the center point of his work, of his mission. 
Now that doesn't mean for the rest of Luke's gospel he's going to be just traveling from where he's at now to Jerusalem. That wouldn't take very long. Uh, he's going to go to a bunch of different places, but the point is, let's say thematically, Luke is anchoring the mission or the work in Jerusalem as the center point of all of the rest of what's going to take place from chapter 9 onward, or really, you know, this last section in chapter 9 onward. And there's much for us to learn about that, namely, that Jesus' mission uh, to, to suffer and die is intricately linked with the nature of his kingdom, and it's also intricately linked with uh, the, the makeup of the people who are going to be part of that kingdom. Now, this is not something I want you to know that Luke makes up or that Jesus makes up and then teaches to his disciples. They are rooted in Jewish scripture when they're putting these ideas together. Now, I can prove that to you from a couple of places, but one place I would like you to look with me is Isaiah 50 and verse 7. And it might not be obvious to you initially as an English reader of this text, but Isaiah 50 verse 7 is what Luke is alluding to when he chooses the strange turn of phrase, he set his face towards Jerusalem. It's in the second half of verse 7. I'm going to read from there. It says, therefore, this is the servant speaking, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This comes in the context of, uh, of Isaiah's uh, suffering servant songs, where the suffering servant is contrasted with the unfaithful people. And Isaiah is looking forward to the work of the servant and how the work of that servant seeks to redeem Israel. Earlier in chapter 50 of Isaiah, you're going to see the, the disobedience of the Israelites highlighted. And then the servant speaking about how he's actually obedient. And this obedience is not a consequential thing. In uh, verse 7, he says, I have set my face like that. I have set my face like a flint. And I know that this obedience, in this obedience, I will not be put to shame. Now, this is the text that Luke wants your, your eye to go to when you read that Jesus set his face on Jerusalem. It's the work of the active obedience of the son, the active obedience of the servant, which is necessary for the redemption of the people. Now, we sometimes, depending on what Christian camp you grew up in or, or uh, what your uh, church was like growing up, or maybe your familiarity with Christianity at all, we sometimes like this idea that we're sinful and we need redemption. And sometimes we don't. The point is, uh, in Isaiah, is that Isaiah is flushing out in the whole of his prophecies that Israel has messed up. They've essentially abandoned God. They've become an apostate people. But God is still resolved to not forget Israel. God is still resolved to redeem his people. And then the question towards the end of Isaiah is, well, how is that going to happen? Because they don't keep his laws. There's no faithful kings. Babylon's in charge. How does, how does Israel survive all this? And the answer comes from God's faithfulness to his people worked out in this servant who's going to essentially redeem the people for himself. The chief of those texts that you might be familiar with is uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering of the servant who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But this is part of that same line of text in Isaiah, that he had set his face like a flint. And what's important about that is that, that the work of Jesus on the earth is not something that we should become so familiar with, so used to, that we forget to be shocked by the significance of it. My point is this. 
We, we live 2,000 years downstream of these happenings. Possibly you've grown up with this teaching your whole life. That kind of familiarity breeds a certain normative expectancy about what Jesus was like. Where you start to say to yourself, well, of course Jesus forgives the sinful woman. Why would he not? You know, she's not so bad. The Pharisees are the bad guys. Of course Jesus would die for my sins. After all, I'm not so bad after all, and, you know, I could deserve a relationship with God. You, if you started reading Isaiah 1 and you get to Isaiah 50, you're going to leave yourself with the impression, not that the people of Israel are worth saving, but actually it's the shocking thing that the people of Israel are supposed to be saved and that it is the intentional work of the son to save those people, the intentional work of this servant. That's really the, the background that you should have when you're reading Luke's gospel, not the 2,000 years later where we are told by our culture and by everyone around us that we're not so bad off. We need God to maybe help augment our lives, but not really to redeem us in any kind of fundamental way. That's not the context that scripture is operating from. Scripture is operating from the context that we are beyond hope, beyond help, unless God does something from heaven down. It's a wonderful book uh, written on this topic. From heaven, he came and sought her. Jesus from heaven comes and seeks his people to redeem them unto himself. It's his intentional, active work of salvation. So much of our literature in the West is focused on our following of Jesus, our fixing our affections on Jesus, our clinging to Jesus, which is, yes, a, a true and right and necessary doctrine, but the essential concept of salvation is that Jesus seeks and redeems us. That's where we get assurance from. Because if it was up to us to hang on to Jesus, it would be uh, up to our emotions, up to our resolve, up to our determination, which fails us left, right, and center. But if it's up to the work of the servant who seeks and saves his people, well, now you have a strong, resolved son of God who can actually do the things he sets himself to do. That's what the text here is saying. Remember, Jesus is a human. He, he's, he's fully God and truly man. And both of these things work together so that when, when he is in his mind's eye, setting his mind on Jerusalem, the crucifixion, He's not going to think about that like someone who doesn't feel pain and won't feel shame and won't feel all of these things associated with the crucifixion. What gets him through that? It's having his people in mind. It's having you and I in mind that he's going to redeem, that he fixes his face on the work of suffering so that he might experience the joy and the delight of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not that he considers Jerusalem as only a, a, a mild road bump. This is an intense bout of suffering, as the Garden of Gethsemane makes clear in John's Gospel. But the point that Luke is driving to us is not that Jesus, just by happenstance, was crucified, or it was just a very natural thing. It was his fixed determination, his resolve, his goal, his mission to redeem his people through the cross. Jesus has been sprinkling that in. Luke's now narratively inserting himself and saying, by the way, in case it wasn't clear so far yet, the necessary work of Jesus is to die in Jerusalem. The rest of how the kingdom flushes out is going to be dependent on that mission. The nature of God's people in the Old Testament and even, you know, in the New Testament and even today is that when, if you were to ask the question, okay, what do we set on our minds? What do we fix our eyes on? What do we resolve to do? Well, if you operate under a modern worldview, you might say, well, we resolve to do good, but we accidentally slip into evil from time to time. Scripture's a little bit more blunt. 
You look at the account of Adam and Eve in the garden. They don't accidentally fall into sin by happenstance. Eve fixes in her mind to eat the fruit that was offered to her, despite God's prohibition of it. Adam fixes in his mind to blame shift to Eve. The people who build the Tower of Babel, they fix in their minds through that. This is an active, conscious work of rebellion against God. The people of Israel, after being redeemed by God, fix in their minds to reject God and worship and serve the Baals. Humanity fixes themselves on sin and rebellion. God fixes himself on redemption of that humanity. And then the question is, well, who's going to win? Is God's redemption going to win out, his resolve to be obedient and atone for sin? Is that going to win out? Or is humanity's rebellion going to win out? And Jesus is able to accomplish not only the act of obedience, which necessarily atones for the sins of his people, but also bring about a people unto himself who can then, let's say, walk in that obedience after him. And that is true even of us today. We still have that human condition. And, even, and apart from Christ, before Christ, outside of Christ, we, of our very nature, tend towards that kind of active rebellion. And we have, in the 21st century, much nicer language for much of that. Uh, we don't, we're not really sinners, but we do struggle with sin. We talk about our addictions, when really sin is sometimes a much more appropriate language to use. We talk about our wrestlings and our failings, when really it's our active, intentional rebellion. We sugarcoat much of the language of our sin. The point is that we don't really need to because Jesus has fixed in his mind to redeem us in spite of our sin. We don't need to sugarcoat it because there's, the good news is not that we're not so bad. The good news is we're actually quite that bad, but God doesn't care so much because he has fixed in his mind to redeem his people. That's what the good news is, is all about. Now, I want you to fix that mission in your mind that Jesus has fixed in his mind to go to Jerusalem for his broken, sinful people because that is going to color in the two subsequent events that happen in the text. You'll see it there in verse 52 when the messengers go before him to enter the village of the Samaritans to make preparation. But verse 53, the people, the Samaritans, don't receive him. The Samaritans in Luke's gospel so far are a category of people that have generally been painted in a favorable light. What Luke's telling us is, but I don't want you to be confused. The Samaritans aren't all good, all faithful, all obedient, and only the Jews are bad. No, 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 no. Jesus, while his salvation is expansive and inclusive of the Gentiles, instead of the Gentiles getting that, they reject him too, just like the Jews did. They don't receive him. Now, there's different reasons why the Gentiles don't receive him. The text here narrows that down to verse 53 because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, it would be hard to understand the gravity of this uh, without, let's say, putting it in a modern light. There are certain people who look at the salvation of God and say something like, I'm happy that it's for me. But if it includes that person over there, I don't want any part of it. The reason the Samaritans reject Jesus' salvation, they reject him, is because he was set towards Jerusalem. His ultimate goal is to save not just Samaritans, but also Jews as well. And these Samaritans don't quite like the prospect of belonging to a kingdom with Jews and Samaritans together. So they're going to reject him. 
You see the same phenomenon the other direction in the book of Acts, where the Jewish people seem to respond favorably to the apostles, and then, you know, the next day, Paul is reasoning, and a lot of, a lot of Gentiles are coming to faith, and now the Jews decide they don't like this message so much, because there's a lot of Gentiles being included in this church. There's a lot of people who we don't like to be around that are part of this Christian group. That's essentially the rejection here. They reject Christ not for his exclusivity, but for his inclusivity. I think we struggle with that too. Sometimes we think about people or categories of people that our culture might be okay with Jesus saving. And so we're rejoice in their redemption, but there's other people who our culture says maybe are not worth saving or not worth reaching out to, are not worth redemption. Uh, but God can save those people too. And the question is, would you still see him as good and righteous and just if he, if he did save one or two of those people? This is the problem with Paul in the New Testament, right? He's Saul first, killing the Jews. Now he's redeemed and saved by God. And the question is, is the church going to accept him or not? Now, the apostles model that for the rest of the church, but the point is that kind of strife between Jew and Gentile, different classes of people, that does not stop with Paul. That does not stop with the early church. That does not stop... Well, it hasn't stopped. The point is, this is something that we work out as the people of God in our sanctification. This text is clear, though. It is a wrong thing or a negative thing for us to reject Jesus because of who he decides to include in his plan of salvation. That is not up to us to decide. And the Samaritans are painted in a negative light because of rejecting Jesus because he's opening his arms also to the Jews. It's very interesting because if you think about the context of Luke's gospel, it's actually the opposite. That Jesus is first sent to the Jewish people and then extends his arm to the Samaritans. So how strange it is for them to reject him because he decided to include the people who are really his people. It's a strange thing. But it's right in line with human nature. So it's easy for us to understand. Then you see something else interesting. And remember the mission of Jesus to forego all this uh, comfort in, in glory, come down to earth, ascend into uh, human form, and now he's working out his mission, fixing his eyes to suffer. He's going to face rejection in that mission. He's going to be rejected by his own people. And now look at the response of James and John and contrast that with what I just told you about Jesus' mission. Verse 34, when James and John saw it, or sorry, verse 54, when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Now, if you're thinking about that, uh, by the way, your translation might add something like, uh, like Elijah did or something, something to that effect. Um, the point is, either way, they're referencing an event that happens in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, where Elijah encounters essentially a pagan army. Uh, you might know this incident. There's a band of 50 people that come to call uh, Elijah into the captivity of a king. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven and essentially eviscerates the whole troop of people. Um, and then it, there's this... Uh, kind of humorous moment where the next guy comes and he's going to grab Elijah and he says, but please, please don't burn us up. I'm, I'm here only by the will of the king. I don't actually have any animosity against you. So Elijah decides to, you know, let them go. But uh, the point is in the text, they've just met Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they, they know probably of the story of his wrath for the people who reject God, the pagans. And so if someone's going to reject Jesus, the natural, let's say, the, the normal response is for judgment to follow the rejection of the Savior. We look at James and John and we say, well, where did that come from? But that's because we live in the West where judgment and wrath are things that we're, they're so far away from us, right? Those are, those are things that we, we keep at arm's length. 
about God. Sometimes it comes out of the woodwork and it's maybe part of our theology, but we don't think it's a good, necessary response for someone who rejects the Lord of glory to suffer for it. James and John do, and actually their theology is more correct than you might think. James and John aren't all that off base. Because what Jesus doesn't say to them is, no, that's not what we're doing. The text tells us he rebuked them, but as is clear by the rest of the testament of the, of, of the, the rest of the teaching in Luke's gospel, the rest of the New Testament, and really considering the book of Revelation, the, the problem with, with their statement is not that they think the enemies of God should be punished. The problem is the timing of that statement. The problem is not that the, re, the rebellious people against God deserve to be punished for their rebellion. That's actually the problem that all of us are in. We do deserve the punishment. The problem with James and John is while they're fully happy for their own sins to be forgiven by Jesus and they're forgetting the patience that God displayed towards them, but they're actively then trying to seek out punishment for people who reject Jesus. Now we live still in between the initial inauguration of redemption and mercy offered by Jesus, the uh, turn and believe, that kind of thing. We still live there and we're still not yet at the point in our redemptive history where Jesus is coming with, with wrath and judgment. We still exist between those two things. But my point is that the wrath and judgment piece is no less glorious or good or just than the part of redemptive history we live in now. So James and John, they get the timing wrong, right? But if you, if you compare their mistiming, their natural response with the mission of Jesus, his patience, his, his awareness of sinful humanity and his seeking sinful humanity, think even in Luke's gospel so far of all the rejection that Jesus has faced and all of the times he could have had this kind of response. He's got an army of angels at his beck and call. People are going to reject him. And as we get deeper into Luke's gospel, he's going to face more and more rejection, ultimately being spat upon and beaten and hanging on a tree. And in all of those things, the most just thing to happen would be for him to punish his enemies. He's, after all, the right hand of God, Psalm chapter 2, who sits up in heaven and laughs at the rebellious nations who seek to plot against him. But he actually actively forgoes judgment. He passes over the sins of humanity, not because humanity is deserving of his passing over of sins, but because it's in the character of God to be patient. We've talked about this before, but this is revealed uh, to Moses in the law. The Lord, the Lord, a God steadfast, slow to anger, and abounding in his steadfast loving kindness to his people. It's part of the nature of God that he is a patient God. He doesn't just punish Pharaoh in Egypt. How many plagues does he send Pharaoh in an attempt to get Pharaoh to repent and let his people go? God's essential character and the character that is being worked out right now in the church is his merciful offer of redemption for fallen humanity. That does not mean that the coming wrath or judgment or the reality of hell are things that the church should sweep under the rug. John the Baptist, remember he says, flee from the wrath to come, turn, repent, and be baptized. This is the essential teaching of the church. So we don't do ourselves any favors if we try to water away the teaching of hell and wrath and judgment. But the point is, we, we really do ourselves a disservice if we say it's somehow immediate or right now, or if you don't repent tonight, you're going to die tomorrow and you should look out for that. That doesn't really help us either because the character of God is a patient character, a loving character, and a, uh, a much more uh, patient character than we are. 
We sometimes think about the people who God doesn't redeem or the people who haven't yet repented and we think maybe they had an untimely death or maybe God, if he would only reveal himself to them in this way, you know, that, that would be a great way to save them. As if we, with our limited finite patience, have a greater heart or a more expansive love than God does. The text makes clear that Jesus is actually the one, not his disciples, who, have the, who has the bigger heart, the more expansive picture of salvation. That's Jesus' essential work. And we are a lot more like the disciples than we might be happy to admit. When someone does us wrong or when someone shames us or when someone accuses us, our natural inclination is, yeah, they, they have what's coming to them. Or uh, they should be punished, but we're thankful that God redeemed us. That's a, that's a human response. Jesus' response, in spite of all of the justice that would be associated with that, is actually to delay punishment further. Now that's such a surprising thing from God. And that's something that the disciples, they won't yet fully pick up. Right now, it's, it's let's say, turn them, and they turn here in the text, and they go to another village. But that's something they haven't gotten down in them yet. It's going to take some time for them to understand that patience. But so it is with us. It takes us a long time to learn the lesson of God's patience for fallen humanity. We tend to think about uh, humanity today, I'm thinking particularly in the West, as a very patient group of people, a very tolerant group of people, a, a people who uh, has open arms for anyone who might want to be part of that community. Um, something I think we found out in the last couple years, or maybe uh, you found that out in the last couple weeks or months, depending on your interaction with the world around you, uh, is that that group's patience or tolerance or kindness that only extends so far as you're in alignment with the ideology of that group. What's interesting about the patience and the tolerance and the kindness of Jesus is his patience doesn't come shorter if you reject him. His patience is still a fixed kind of patience. Think about all the times in human history where humanity has swelled in rebellion against him. And he could have rightly terminated human history at that point, come down and started creation all over again. You read Genesis, he could have done that with Adam and Eve. He could have done that when, when Noah sins right after being redeemed. He could have done that uh, right after the Tower of Babel was established. He could have done that, well, a whole bunch of times is the point. And he doesn't. His fixed determination is for humanity to have opportunity to repent and believe. That's not something that he owes us, but that is something that's in his character to offer to us. Now, for us who carry out the mission of Jesus, it is this essential mission that is still ours today in the church. If you think about uh, Jesus ascending, resurrecting, uh, paying for sin, coming to newness of life, and then commissioning his disciples out to go and make other disciples, that's the same mission that we carry today. We're still in that time of the offer of repentance out to people. So, <laughs> as tempted as we might be to look at humanity or look at people in our lives and write them off because they've rejected God or they've mistreated us or maybe they're ongoing in a, in a mistreatment of us or we should not have that kind of a heart posture towards humanity. Think about Paul and his heart posture to the Jewish people wishing himself accursed so that his fellow kinsmen, the heirs of the promises would be able to know Christ. That's the heart of Paul for people who have imprisoned him, beaten him, had the Romans beat him. That's his heart posture towards them. Now, I doubt that you have anyone in your life who's gotten you thrown in jail or maybe caused you to lose a job 
or maybe caused you to lose a position of authority or status. I doubt that you have that kind of experience. Maybe you have. Um, but we do certainly have experiences of someone who's mistreated us, maybe on account of our faith or account of just who we are. And our heart for those people needs to imitate the heart of Christ for those people. The heart of Christ here is not to call down fire on the Samaritans, but rather to turn, go to another village. He's not going to cause strife. He's not going to pick a fight with them. That's his heart. Now, he's the Lord of glory who could actually call down fire justly. Our heart posture needs to model that kind of heart posture for fallen humanity. He offers repentance to them. That's the point. Uh, The way Paul uh, will argue it in Acts 17 uh, is that God, you know, in the former days were times of ignorance, but now, now he calls all people everywhere to repentance. This is, this is the uh, extent of the Great Commission that we go forward into all the earth calling people to repentance. That's what making disciples is. Now, we sometimes think we can make disciples by forgoing the heaviness of repentance and offering maybe other alluring factors to the Christian life, none of which is a really good way to make a good disciple. But uh, the essential action of repenting and believing, uh, repenting of sin, turning away and setting your eyes on Christ and his lordship, That's what it means to make a disciple. That's what we're called to do, to go into the world to do. And we're called to do that for everyone who might hear. So we don't not share the gospel with someone because uh, we might suspect that they wouldn't like it very much. Uh, We don't not share the gospel with someone because uh, we think that they grew up in church and they already know it so that we don't need to rehash it with them. We're called, you know, to really get this gospel out to as many people as who will hear it and who can hear it. In the West, uh, particularly in, in America, Christianity's character over the years has developed into something that is really this kind of muted, private, non-interactive Christianity. And it becomes then more like a moral set of things to do rather than uh, an essential belief that encompasses all of our life. And so it's, it's rare to find American Christians living their life in any kind of fundamentally different way than the rest of Americans. And if we're not modeling repentance, death to self, life to God, we can't expect the world to believe that they should do that kind of thing either. So it starts with us in our own walk with God to repent and believe and to follow him. But it doesn't stop there. That's not preaching the gospel, just living in accord with the gospel. We also call people who live in sin to repentance. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you see someone who is caught in sin, that's the first thing you talk about. But the point is you have a general work in your life, a general mission, a general trajectory of sharing the gospel with as many people as you could possibly share the gospel with because it's the good news of salvation. Because repentance is actually required for salvation. We can't, we can't sell the message of Jesus or his goodness without getting over that hump that we have to repent and believe. That's something we can't dispose of. But the point is we don't need to dispose of it because his salvation is actually Resolved to deal with all that. That's the whole work of him going to Jerusalem here in the text. So if you, if you consider all the people you interact with, all of the ways in which you might partake in the mission of discipleship, uh, consider all the times which you might want to prioritize your own comfort or possibly your own convenience over and above the mission of discipleship. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to scrap your life as it is and then go and go somewhere else, learn a new language, and go get the gospel out there. For some, 
That is actually the mission. That's, that's the unique call of God on their life. But for most of us, if you look around the culture that we're in, most of us, if we just stayed right here and we witnessed to everyone who didn't know Christ in your immediate vicinity, you'd have a whole life's work ahead of you. And for most of us, let's say we have a job, a career, a family, that kind of thing, you've, you've, got, you've got roots down in a certain location, and you're not feeling particularly called to the foreign mission field. That does not in any way wash you of the job of making disciples. Because there's, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of people who need to hear the gospel right here in our backyard, right here in Indianapolis. Jesus, with his firm, fixed mindset, goes to Jerusalem for redemption of the people. So his disciples, his followers, should have a firm, fixed mindset to go to all the earth to make disciples. As not something that happens if it happens kind of thing, but something that is, let's say, an undergirding, underlying principle that governs all our lives. Again, that doesn't mean you have to quit a job, but that does mean your job has to feel the impact of your sharing the gospel and your Christian witness in that workplace. That doesn't mean you need to get a new set of friends, but that does mean that they need to feel that impact as well. The gospel is something that is going to undergird everything that you do, not because it's convenient, not because it's comfortable, but because it's the mission of the Christian. Jesus doesn't go to the cross because it's convenient or comfortable. He goes because it's his mission. It's his, it's his duty. It's his resolve. And in like fashion, all Christians can learn from the model of Christ, imitate Christ in this same way. In the same way that he completes his mission of going to the cross to save his people, so we must complete our mission with a firm intention to go and get the gospel to all the earth. Now, it's, it's probably worth us asking the question, is the heart of Jesus in this mission, is the heart of him really good in this? Because I think this is something most of us might think of or most of us might encounter as we go out into the world. Why would Jesus call, up, call me to give up this? Could he really be good if he tells me to not do this or not do that or not behave in this way? Or could he really still be good if he's telling me to deny myself, right? That's the worldview we're up against, that delight and pleasure is the chief end of man. And so we have our work cut out for us as Christians to actually show why, the, why Jesus is much better news than that. But this is an essential question that we, we can be asked by people. Is Jesus really good to call me to repent and follow him? Seems rather restrictive. Seems rather boring. Seems rather uh, unfair for him to call me to give up sin. I think part of that is because, one, the world does not like giving up its sin. Kind of the whole point of why we go on in sin. But you, as a person before you were in Christ, probably didn't like giving up your sin either. Now the question is, what changed for you between your former self of loving your sin and your current self of, well, not liking your sin so much and actually warring against it? What changed? Was it that someone sold you uh, the good news that it would be a more comfortable life to fight your sin on a daily basis? Probably not, because it's much, it's much hard work to, to fight your sin on a daily basis. Why do we as Christians believe what we believe and follow Christ as we do? It's because we heard the gospel and somehow, some way, by God's grace, it took root in our hearts. The work of getting the gospel out is not one of winning some kind of logical warfare out against the culture where we convince them of the Christian worldview merely by logic and reason and proofs. That's not the point. The, the mission of the gospel, and Paul talks about this, it's foolishness to the world, but 
It is the very means by which God is pleased to move through his spirit and by his power and by his word to redeem sinners unto himself. You're a Christian today because someone somewhere took the risk of sharing the gospel with you. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was some church you attended and you heard the gospel. The point is, they didn't reason you into the kingdom by logic. They didn't woo you into the kingdom by uh, clever comfort. You are a Christian because the gospel message took root in your heart and flourished into a beautiful picture of redemption. So when you go into the world, that's what you're trying to do as well. Now, people might not like that message. People might reject that message. That's actually part of the picture of going into the world is that we will face rejection. Jesus teaches this. His people will be rejected and despised by the world. But that does not mean we somehow stop. We go and we pray for fruit to be born. Now, there's a parable that Luke has already told us, the parable of the soils, which teaches about this. We, we throw and we scatter the seed all over the place so that for the good soil, it takes root. Now, we are the extension of that parable. In the parable, it's Jesus who's the sower who scattered the seed. But by extension, us who carry the mantle of that gospel preaching are also those who carry the seed and who now currently sow and who, who scatter the seed as far and wide as it will go. Now, if it's three-fourths of the people we're going to encounter who are not going to believe, that's according to the math of the parable. I'm not saying that's an exact ratio. If it's three-quarters of the seed that aren't going to hear, does that mean we stop? Or is it for the hope of the one-fourth that might believe that we continue to go? I think we have to focus on the one-fourth. And even if that's uncomfortable, even if that's painful, even if that is costly, which all of it will be, we still do it. Because it, it, remember, this is not something we're doing in order to earn favor with God. This is something we're doing because God has already modeled it for us. Think if Jesus sat in his throne room, in his, in his glorified state, and decided, you know, sinful humanity, we'll just destroy him, we'll start over, I don't need to enter into their state, I don't need to enter into their affairs, that's going to be painful, it's going to be time-consuming, it's going to require me to do a lot of things I don't want to do, it's going to require me to give up some things, ah, I just won't do it. But the model that Christ shows us in the New Testament is that he actually, despite being aware of all those things, empties himself and takes on the likeness of human form. He bears the scorn and shame of humanity. He's tempted in every way as we are. He didn't need to face temptation. He puts himself in the line of fire for his people. He, he puts himself on the cross for his people. He does that all actively. And he does that, not so that we go do that, but so that we take cues from him and we say, well, what is our mission? How should we carry out our mission? We take our cues from the one who went before us. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures the cross. We, for the joy set before us, share the gospel. Not because the sharing of the gospel is a particularly enjoyable experience, but because the joy on the other side of sharing the gospel is. Jesus doesn't go to the cross because it's a particularly enjoyable moment in time. He goes for what lies beyond the cross, the promise beyond the cross, the promise of resurrection and newness of life. If you consider heaven in mind, if you consider eternity and what hangs in the balance, that's the reason you share the gospel with people. Not because it's a comfortable experience. Not because they're not going not, not to respond favorably every time. You do it because of the thing that you have set in your mind. So consider Jesus, the one who fixes his face on Jerusalem, the place of his death and suffering. And consider 
how we can learn from his determination. Maybe that informs your conduct in the week. And not something that you do of your own strength. Something that you do by the grace of his spirit, by the momentum of his power, through prayer, through steadfast, on your knees, seeking his face. Because Jesus does actually none of these things on his own strength. Actually, the New Testament tells us he does it by the strength of the Holy Spirit, who is working on him at this time to both carry him and to preserve him. It's the very reason why he's able to face temptations. It's the reason why he's able to do miracles is the power of the Holy Spirit, which is on him. And we too, by that same spirit, by that same power, carry out our mission on this earth. Not of our own strength, not of our own will, but according to his spirit, we carry it out. So in all these things, consider his work, his model, and consider how that might inform your work and how you carry out your mission on earth as a Christian. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful and beyond words sometimes of your sacrifice. When we consider all that you had in heaven and all that you forsook for a time, all that you endured in your active work of redemption, and we consider all those things that you took on that were not yours to bear, but that you chose to take on yourself anyway. Lord, would you spur us to affection for you, to see your glory in all of that work, but also, Lord, that you would spur us on in our own lives to follow in your footsteps. Uh, these are paths well-trodden by Christians and generations before us. Uh, these are paths well-trodden by your disciples. This is what you invite us into. Would you give us grace as we try to figure that out? As we uh, work our obedience on this world, uh, and we do that in a sometimes perfect and sometimes imperfect way. Lord, as we think about the rest of uh, this time tonight and our, our worship, would you allow our hearts and our minds to lift you up and lift your name high? Uh, that all of what we've learned here in your word would not stop in our minds, but would flow into our hearts and out of our mouths as we worship and adore your name. As we remember all that you've done, all that you are, and your very nature and presence. And Lord, would that magnify who you are? Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen.